Good evening. One million dead in the United States from COVID. Rand Paul blocks Ukraine aid bill. A baby food shortage in America. And the black hole at the center of the Milky Way is imaged for the first time. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, May 12th, 2022. A House panel issued a subpoena today to House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and four other GOP lawmakers in its probe into the violent January 6th insurrection, an extraordinary step that is little precedent and is certain to further inflame partisan tensions over the 2021 attack. The panel is investigating McCarthy's conversations with then-President Donald Trump the day of the attack and meetings before other lawmakers had with the White House beforehand as Trump and his aides worked to overturn his 2020 election defeat. The former president's supporters violently pushed past police that day, broke through windows and doors of the Capitol, and interrupted the certification of President Joe Biden's victory. The decision to issue subpoenas to McCarthy and Representatives Jim Jordan of Ohio, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Andy Biggs of Arizona, and Mo Brooks of Alabama is a dramatic show forced by the panel, which has already interviewed nearly 1,000 witnesses and collected more than 100,000 documents as it investigates the worst attack in the Capitol in two centuries. And today marked a grim anniversary, one million deaths in the United States alone, one of the highest for any country in the world of COVID-19. Nancy Pelosi, the majority leader in the House of Representatives, Mark the day in a speech earlier. Not such a good morning in that uh, today on the steps of the Capitol, we will be observing the one millionth death from COVID. President is, my understanding is the president is lowering flags at half staff. Uh, we will have, sadly, our regular coming together in prayer and song. Million people have died such a terrible toll. And when you think of what it means in the lives of those families. So we uh, send, of course, our condolences uh, to the families, the children, the siblings, the friends, the colleagues, the spouses of those lost. Uh, it's the heartbreak continues. All the more reason why we must pass the COVID uh, legislation so we can purchase vaccines, provide testing and treatments to prevent the outbreak from various variant, other variants that may come along and deaths. And a million is just a symbolic number. Uh, the numbers of people who died from COVID will never really be truly known. It's probably been a million for a while. The pandemics, uh, consider the comparison, though, to figure out just what one million deaths means in this uh, uh, American tragedy, but it's also a tragedy throughout the world where millions of others have died. But consider this comparison in the United States example. The population of Washington, D.C. is about 670,000 people. Try to imagine life without every person in every building, on every street in the nation's capital, and then imagine another 330,000 people are gone. To attempt to put the $1 million in uh, context, uh, make a timeline. The first confirmed COVID-19 death was announced in late February 2020. It was a man in his 50s from Washington State. But since testing wasn't widely available in the early days of the pandemic and information was sketchy, the death toll was actually much higher around that time. 
Within weeks, COVID had killed more people than all the plane crashes in the United States in the previous 20 years. The toll crooks grew exponentially. By late March, the pandemic's death toll surpassed Hurricane Katrina's, which hit New Orleans in 2005. By early 2020, COVID had already killed more Americans than all the service members killed in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. By mid-April of 2020, the death toll was growing at an inconceivable speed, worse than being hit by a 9-11-sized terrorist attack every other day. After three months, the death toll had surpassed 100,000 people. Despite nationwide lockdowns, the deaths continued. By the time the first vaccine shots were distributed in December 2020, more than 300,000 Americans had died. The monthly death toll peaked in January 2021, when nearly 96,000 people died, more than the number of Americans who died in the Vietnam and Korean wars combined. On average, about 2,500 people died from COVID daily during the winter of 2021. That would be like the Japanese attack in Pearl Harbor every day for three consecutive months. As vaccinations increased, the number of deaths fell. In July 2021, the nation registered 8,600 COVID deaths, the lowest monthly toll in more than a year. Still, millions resisted the vaccine, and as the Delta variant took over the country, the virus regained strength. In September and October, COVID killed more than 100,000 people. At this point, COVID's overall death toll had surpassed the number who died in the 1918 influenza pandemic in the United States. In 2021, the pandemic killed 476,000 people, more deaths than from strokes and Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, influenza, and pneumonia combined. As the Omicron variant took over, COVID killed an average more than 2,000 people each day in January and February of this year, a total of more than 125,000 deaths in two months. Historians estimate the death toll for the American Civil War to be about 750,000 military and 50,000 civilian deaths. COVID killed tens of thousands more people in about half the time. Omar Ocampo is a researcher with the Institute for Policy Studies. He says that the United States should look hard and fast at what happened over the last couple of years over COVID, the number of deaths, the unprecedented number of deaths, and understand that it's the lack of health care in this country that made the outbreak so much worse here than most of the world. Vietnam had one of the best responses and very low infection rates and death rates. It's interesting how the pandemic and the measures that needed to be taken in order to defeat the virus has become politicized. And I think it's just a reflection of how polarized we have become. I would argue that polarization is always polarization in politics, but I think it has reached an acute level within the past 15 years. And it reached its peak, I would say, under Trump. We're just heavily polarized and there's very sophisticated disinformation and misinformation campaigns that we can see online. This makes people unaware or not have all the facts on the severity of the virus and what can be done. The unfortunate lesson that we learned from this is that the people most hit is the working class. Juxtaposition from 1 million deaths is that the billionaire class has seen their wealth increase by $1.7 trillion. This wouldn't be possible without the hard work and the strength of the working class. And they continue to bear the brunt of the pandemic because they don't have the privilege of working from home and have to be on the front line. A robust labor movement is necessary to not only strengthen workers' rights and ensure worker safety, increase wages, but it's necessary for increasing democracy in the workplace. Through progressive taxation, like a wealth tax, 
we can have the resources and the revenue available in order to strengthen our healthcare system so that it doesn't get overwhelmed so we can have better health outcomes. So those would be the two lessons that I think that people should come away with. The basic problem with COVID was that it showed that the U.S. healthcare system wasn't what it was wanted to be, especially when poor people were at stake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If there was ever an argument to be made for universal health care, something that's affordable and, and of high quality, it's the COVID-19 pandemic. It's inaccessible because of how expensive it is and that we do not have the capacity to tackle pandemic because it got easily overwhelmed. We need to strengthen it and have a more robust health care system that's universal and free at delivery. Diseases come and go. There'll be others, there have been others. Why wasn't the uh, nation's health care system ready to handle, you know, millions and millions of people getting sick? It should have been no-brainer, easy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's because we have a political class, a certain segment of the population that just don't want universal health care. They think that having it privatized and done for profit is more efficient. We would say that at the top, we do have some of the best doctors in the world. They're first class, but it's only accessible to about 20% of the population, the top 20% who can afford it. The rest are basically to fend for themselves and at the mercy of their, their health insurance on whether or not they will cover a procedure. Definitely need to have universal health care system. Anything you'd like to add? We need to have a wealth tax in order to give the state the resources needed to have a robust health care system and that the masses, the working class, need to organize. And through organization, we have power and the ability to put forth policies that not only prevent the extreme concentration of wealth from occurring in the first place, but give us the ability to put pressure on public officials in order to have some of our demands met. Omar Ocampo is a researcher with the Institute for Policy Studies. <clears throat> pardon. Russia's war in Ukraine, which began 11 weeks oh, uh, pardon me, Russia's war in Ukraine, which began 11 weeks ago, is driving a dramatic expansion of the NATO military alliance. With Finland announcing today that it intends to apply, and Sweden expected to follow suit soon, marking a tectonic shift in the European security order and a significant setback for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Who has threatened retaliation? Finland's president and prime minister endorsed NATO membership in a statement, the first step towards a formal application for a country that shares an 800-mile border with Russia, and has long been militarily non-aligned. The White House has said it would strongly support both Finland and Sweden's bid for accession. Moscow, meanwhile, has raged against the Western alliance's potential enlargement, with Russia officials vowing retaliatory steps to balance the situation. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the United States would support Finland applying for NATO membership. We, of course, will respect whatever decisions they make, she said at a news briefing today. Both Finland and Sweden are close and valued partners of the United States and of NATO. I would note that even without them being members of NATO, our militaries have worked together for many years. We're confident that we can find ways to work with them, address any concerns either country may have about the period now or whatever is required if they were to join NATO. As a member of NATO, Finland would strengthen the entire defense alliance, uh, the leaders of NATO said in a statement today. The decision, which must be approved by the Finnish parliament, is expected to be finalized in the coming days. And Senator Rand Paul objected to a Senate vote on an aid package for Ukraine, meaning the chamber will not approve the measure this week. Biden wanted the bill, which sends $39.8 billion in economic, humanitarian and defense aid to Ukraine on his desk by the end of this week. 
Paul single-handedly blocked the measure's swift advancement because the Senate requires unanimous consent to quickly move such a bill to a final vote. Because there's opposition to a quick vote, the Senate must now go through all the usual procedural hoops. We cannot save Ukraine by dooming the U.S. economy, Paul said of the vote. Paul, who is ideologically opposed to sending more dollars overseas to a war in which the United States is not directly fighting, said the only way he'd vote to advance the bill was if he was allowed to include a provision that would require the appointment of an inspector general to oversee the funding. Doing so would have forced the bill to go back to the House. Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who have agreed to pass the aid package this week, offered Paul an amendment vote on the provision. He rejected it. He's simply saying, my way or the highway, Schumer said. When you have a proposal to amend a bill, you can't just come to the floor and demand it by fiat. You have to convince other members to back it first. That's how the Senate works. That's what Schumer said. This is what Rand Paul had to say. Under consideration, we'd spend $40 billion. This is the second spending bill for Ukraine in two months. And this bill is three times larger than the first. Our military aid to Ukraine is nothing new, though. Since 2014, the United States has provided more than $6 billion in security assistance to Ukraine, in addition to the $14 billion Congress authorized just a month ago. If this bill passes, the U.S. will have authorized roughly $60 billion in total spending for Ukraine. For those who say this is not enough, for those of you in this chamber who say that our military spending is never enough, Let's put $60 billion into perspective. According to Elias Youssef, a security assistant at the Stimson Center, Kiev would become the largest yearly recipient of U.S. military aid of the past two decades. Except for the top five countries, $60 billion is more than every other country in the world spends on their entire military expenditures. If this gift to Ukraine passes, our total aid to Ukraine will almost equal the entire military budget of Russia. And it's not as if we have that money lying around. We will have to borrow that money from China to send it to Ukraine. The cost of this package we are voting on today is more than the U.S. spent during the first year of the U.S. conflict in Afghanistan. Congress authorized force, and the president sent troops into the conflict. The same cannot be said of Ukraine. This proposal towers over domestic priorities as well. The massive package of $60 billion to Ukraine dwarfs the $6 million spent on cancer research annually. $60 billion is more than the amount the government collects in gas taxes each year to build roads and bridges. The $60 billion to Ukraine could fund substantial portions or entire large cabinet departments. The $60 billion nearly equals the entire State Department budget. The $60 billion exceeds the budget for the Department of Homeland Security and for the Department of Energy. In an attempt to save Ukraine, we will doom, or will we, doom the United States to such a future. Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul. Anatole Levin is a senior research fellow in Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, penning books including The Baltic Revolutions, Chechnya, Tombstone of Russian Power, and Ukraine and Russia. His recent pieces include The Horrible Dangers of Pushing a U.S. Proxy War in Ukraine, he says, to judge by his latest statements, the Biden administration is increasingly committed to using the conflict in Ukraine to wage a proxy war against Russia with, as its goal, the weakening or even destruction of the Russian state. He spoke with WBAI from London earlier today. The Russian army has been largely fought to a standstill. The original Russian plan has been abandoned to take Kiev and replace the Ukrainian government. And now they are fighting to try to 
conquer the rest of the Donbass, but are making very slow progress even there, if any progress at all. Putin has some reason to say that this has become a proxy war of the US against Russia, because after all, the US Defense Secretary has more or less said that. But also, of course, Putin is desperate to find excuses for the failure of his invasion, saying that America is responsible for the war and Russia is fighting America does allow him to try to disguise the extent of Russia's failure. What is a proxy war? Let's start with that. Well, a proxy war is what the Soviets waged against America in Vietnam. America waged against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. It's when you use local allies to try to damage uh, your adversary without your own troops becoming involved. And of course, the allies have their own reasons to do this. During the Cold War, there were numerous such wars in Africa as well, in which, in these cases, people took opposite sides, not even often for ideological reasons, but simply as part of geopolitical calculations. The great advantage of proxy wars is that it's local people who do the dying and not your own forces. Although it doesn't always work out like that because, of course, you can find yourself drawn in. Vietnam. It seems like there's Russian troops dying. Thousands have already died. Who's launching this proxy war? Who's benefiting the most from this proxy war in this case? America is benefiting. I mean, it wasn't America didn't launch the war. Russia invaded Ukraine, just as the Soviet Union intervened in Afghanistan. But undoubtedly now, if you listen to much of the US media, and if you listen to people in the Biden administration, it started with America helping Ukraine to defend itself. But now, clearly, there are there are also wider American motives involved. Do you think the U.S. was involved in targeting Russian generals and the Russian warship? Yes. Remember that in Syria, Russia was fighting against ISIS, who were also our enemies. This is the problem about extending this kind of struggle into being a global struggle. The risk is that you end up in a situation like in Iran during the Cold War, when America got rid of an Iranian nationalist but a liberal nationalist, secular nationalist, having become convinced quite wrongly that he was communist and a Soviet ally. And as a result, what did America get? America got Ayatollah Khomeini, a much, much more dangerous Iranian regime. I mean, this is the problem in the Middle East. If fighting Russia becomes the be-all and end-all of everything, or Afghanistan, where we made allies, of course, of Islamist extremists who then fathered the Taliban, be careful what you wish for. Some of your local allies can turn out in, in the end to be your enemies. Putin was not a negatively held person. He did not come off as a crazy warmongering person who would launch a battle, a useless war. Didn't they know what they were getting into? Putin has changed a lot. It happens to aging autocrats, especially after a string of successes. He's listened to less and less advice. His circle has become more and more narrow. Any critical voices are excluded. And then, of course, you get the phenomenon, which, to be fair, you've got in the Bush administration before the Iraq war, that intelligence, contrary to what you're hoping or planning to do, is simply suppressed or excluded. So I think Putin is an aging dictator with many of the, the syndromes of an aging dictator. And one of them is complete inability to learn from history, which has indeed led Russia into this disaster. Can it escalate? If Russia is facing complete defeat, or if it's the war is going on forever and the Russian economy is collapsing, then there will obviously be a temptation to try to do something that will not directly attack America, perhaps, but attack bombard Poland 
in an effort to try to terrify the Europeans into making a, a separate peace. And then, of course, you have American retaliation, maybe a no-fly zone, and you get into a spiral of escalation between the two greatest nuclear powers in the world, which is something, of course, that during the Cold War, eight US presidents took very, and Soviet leaders too, took care to avoid. The idea of Russia as a conventional threat to NATO, of invading NATO, is absolutely ridiculous, given the performance of the Russian army. <laughs> um, if, if they can't take a city like Kharkov, which is 20 miles from Russia, we really don't need to worry about them invading NATO. But of course, they do still have an awful lot of missiles. World War II, they lost against Finland terribly, and yet then they defeated Germany. But Germany had to invade them. If we went mad and invaded Russia, then they might well end up by winning. That, at least, we do not intend to do. Anatole Levin is Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And here in the United States, many parents are hunting for infant formula because of a combination of short and long-term problems that have hit most of the biggest U.S. brands. Millions of babies in the United States rely on formula, which is the only source of nutrition recommended for infants who aren't exclusively breastfed. Today, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said the White House is on the problem and would do its best to get the baby food flowing. The Biden-Harris administration will continue to monitor this situation and identify other ways we can support the safe and rapid increase in the production and distribution of baby formula. Uh, today, we also mark, and you heard the president do this this morning, a tragic milestone in the United States, one million lives lost due to COVID-19. COVID-19, she said. And finally, astronomers today unveil the first image of a supermassive black hole that roils the center of our galaxy. Its gravity so powerful that it bends space and time and forms a glowing ring of light with eternal darkness at its core. The black hole seen from Earth near the constellation Sagittarius has a mass equal to more than four million suns. At University of Arizona astronomer Feria Ozel, speaking for the uh, uh, Science Foundation, had this to say. Our home in this universe, what fills our night sky on a dark summer night. At its heart, towards the constellation Sagittarius, is Sagittarius A star, the supermassive black hole suspected to reside there. A source that has been a focus of intense astronomical studies for decades. Observations of stars orbiting around, around it revealed the presence of an object that is very massive, four million times the mass of our sun, but also very faint. For me personally, I met it 20 years ago and have loved it and tried to understand it since. But until now, we didn't have the direct picture confirming that Sajay's star was indeed a black hole. Today, the Event Horizon Telescope is delighted to share with you the first direct image of the gentle giant in the center of our galaxy, Sagittarius A star. This image shows a bright ring surrounding the darkness, the telltale sign of the shadow of the black hole. 
Light escaping from the hot gas swirling around the black hole appears to us as the bright ring. Light that is too close to the black hole, close enough to be swallowed by it, eventually crosses its horizon and leaving behind, leaves behind just a dark void in the center. And that is Feria Ozel. She's an astronomer with the University of Arizona. The achievement, supported by the National Science Foundation, relied on contributions from more than 300 scientists at 80 institutions, including eight telescopes. One of the telescopes is at the South Pole. The data collected took years to process and analyze. And that's some of the news for Thursday, May 12, 2022. The news is produced Linda Perry, our engineer, Tracy Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.